Good evening. This is Ian Bezik, your host of Bezik on Stocks. As always, everything here is for entertainment and education purposes only. Nothing here is an investment advice. I want to wish everyone a happy new year. Hope everyone is uh, staying safe and doing well. Um, yeah, and so tonight we'll be talking about 100 Baggers, which is a book by author Christopher Meyer, who is a fund manager in the past. He wrote investment newsletters and I believe worked in banking as well. And I think it's a great investing book. I've read it four times, three times prior to this year. And then I read it once again over New Year's in preparation for this episode. Uh, it was a book that got a lot of press back in 2015, 2016 when it was published. And then uh, kind of disappeared. And then last year, it made a comeback, uh, kind of with all the growth stocks, uh, people buying up software companies and all, pointing to this book. And there were a lot of misconceptions about the ideas in the book. And so I think it's worth addressing the material here in terms of what leads to a 100-bagger stock, how are these sorts of returns actually possible, and um, kind of separating the reality from the fiction in that sense. And it seemed very timely to do this episode now with, with those aforementioned growth stocks crashing over the past uh, few months. Uh, it's becoming clear that just buying any stock that's growing quickly is not necessarily a path to getting a 100 times return on your capital. There needs to be a more disciplined uh, approach than just that. And so, and so yeah, that's uh, the conversation for tonight. Uh, I'll kind of lay out what I've learned from the book, discuss some potential uh, principles for finding hundred baggers, and what we might be, what might be interesting today, and then open the line up for discussion on anything from the book or any potential hundred baggers you might be thinking about. Uh, yeah, so with that out of the way, the idea for hundred baggers, uh, the author got it. It's kind of a sensational title, and people have kind of accused it of being a clickbait title. Uh, but the author actually got it from reading a much older book from the 1970s uh, by an investment advisor called Thomas Phelps, who had uh, written his own book on 100 baggers and had done a study of stocks from the 1940s through the 1970s of all the stocks that would make 100 times return on one's capital, just meaning simply if you put $10,000 in a stock and then left it there, that you would end up with a million dollars or more at the end of the period. Um, he, the Phelps, this author, was uh, the head of investing coverage for the Wall Street Journal. He was an editor for Barron's and an investment manager. Um, and so his guiding kind of quotation uh, was, when you look at business results, and if you have a company that's steadily growing revenues and earnings, for many years, Phelps would ask, quote, would a businessman seeing only these figures have been jumping in and out of the stock? I doubt it. And so Phelps urged his readers, when you find a company that constantly grows its earnings and revenues without pause, that you should hold on to the company. That was kind of his guiding philosophy. Uh, and Phelps said that when he had violated this principle that had cost him dearly, he related one story of selling $7,415 of Polaroid stock in 1954 to pay for a hospital visit. Uh, and had he held that stock through to the 1960s, it would have been worth $843,000. So a gain of more than 100x uh, in just 15 years that he had foregone by using that capital instead to pay for medical expenses. Uh, one idea that Phelps really liked was the coffee can approach, which was uh, kind of imagining that after you buy a stock, back in those days, you would get a stock certificate uh, rather than than digitally like we do now. And so there was one client of his that he would recommend a stock. And then after the client uh, purchased the stock, he would throw the securities in a coffee can and then not look at them again. Uh, and then after the client died, they went back and uh, kind of reviewed the results. And uh, a great number of the securities that he'd purchased, he would purchase $5,000 of each of the broker's recommendations. A great number of them had gone to $2,000 or to zero. Uh, but if you had gone to $50,000 or $100,000, and then uh, the client's Xerox was worth $800,000 off of a $5,000 initial investment. And so just by buying Xerox, the, the client had made returns that beat the market. And then obviously he owned shares of quite a few other companies that had gone up 10x or 20x. Uh, and the idea from the coffee can being that you shouldn't buy anything that you wouldn't want to hold for 10 years. And obviously, that's not applicable in all cases. But if you're thinking from a coffee can perspective, when I buy this stock, is this something that 
that if the stock market, like during World War One, the stock market closed for a while, people couldn't trade. Is this something that I would be happy to own if I were uh, incapacitated for a while? And so that's kind of the coffee can approach and kind of a guiding principle of hungry baggers is looking for stocks that you can own for many years because virtually all of the the stocks that became hundred baggers in the study, they dropped 50% or more at some point during their journey. Many of them dropped 70, 80%. Uh, obviously, Amazon famously dropped 90%. Uh, it's kind of the leading example nowadays of, of a successful hundred bagger that people point to when they say, hold your stocks regardless. But how many people were willing to hold Amazon down 90% in 2001? How many people are willing to hold their there's SaaS stocks that are down 70, 80% now, very few. I mean, we've seen people that were saying they were going to hold Peloton and Zoom and and all of these names, uh, Teladoc and everything. They were like, oh, I'm buying it and never selling. And then this year, everybody's selling, obviously. And so uh, kind of when you buy, when you have to have that coffee can approach. Uh, is this a business that I can really hold for five or 10 years um, or longer and not get scared out of it? And so... Uh, yeah, as uh, Meyer says in the book, uh, it's very hard to make if you're constantly asking yourself every day, every month, should I sell this stock? Should I buy more of the stock? You're having to make a series of decisions, and every time you make a decision, you may screw up. Uh, but if you make one correct decision in the beginning, and then you don't constantly second guess yourself, you have a better chance of sticking to your plan. And uh, obviously, people can say from a perfectly efficient standpoint that. The, you should reevaluate your portfolio frequently and constantly make decisions, but uh, most of us are humans, we're not robots, and so we're going to have uh, life occasions, like we lose a lot of money in something else, we lose our job, our spouse gets ill or something, and it's going to put our, our mental game off balance, and so if we're constantly deciding, should I throw out all the stocks in my portfolio or not, um, we're going to make an error at some point if we're constantly deciding once again. Okay, so that's the idea of the coffee can. Uh, in the original book that, that this was based off of, Phelps highlighted a, a fund called the Voya Corporate Leaders Fund, uh, which is uh, one of the early mutual funds. It was fascinating because it bought 30 stocks in 1935 and has held them to this day with no changes, no purchases, no sales. You would think a portfolio of 30 stocks purchased, what is that, 70 uh, more than 70 years ago, would uh, perform poorly because really it would be missing technology stocks. It would, it would own a bunch of stuff that was obsolete. Uh, but in fact, as it turns out, the of the original 30 stocks, 20 it now holds 22 companies, and some of these were companies that didn't even exist back then. And this came about from mergers and spin-offs and all. And so, for example, the Voya Corporate Leaders Fund. Uh, owns Berkshire Hathaway today because it owned the Atchison Topeka Railroad, which was acquired by Berkshire, and they received stock for it. Uh, they own CBS Viacom because it owned Westinghouse Electric. It owns Honeywell because it owned Allied Chemical, and so on and so forth. And so this fund uh, has remained relevant. And in fact, as of uh, Meyer's publication in 2015, the Voya Corporate Fund had beaten 98% of other mutual funds over the past five and 10 years, uh, which is pretty impressive for a fund that the managers uh, bought their stocks in 1935 and then never did anything again. And yet, they, uh, despite the, all the fund managers being in the grave for decades, they outperformed basically all of the active managers of today. Uh, so that's it's just crazy to think about. Uh, so what makes a 100-bagger? Uh, Meyer, Meyer's funds, uh, they paid more than $50,000 for historical research to go through all the U.S. listed stocks, uh, used a screener for everything over $50 million of market cap starting in 1962, I believe, and through 2015, they found that there were 365 stocks that if you put in $10,000 or more, that you would end up with a million, and that's from price appreciation plus dividends. Um, let's see, the average over that time period, let's see, the average market cap going in was 300, is that right? Yeah. Uh, no, the average market cap was $500 million and the average sales uh, amount was $170 million for a successful 100-bagger. So fairly small companies, but not you don't have to buy tiny micro-caps. You can buy companies that are already reasonably successful. Notably, the average sales multiple for a successful 100-bagger was only three times. So uh, be cautious when you see people today saying that it's good to pay 20 or 30 times revenues or whatnot because... That's the sort of price you have to pay for explosive growth. Historically, that hasn't been the case. 
uh, people might think that you only get 100 baggers in the U.S. because we have the U.S. has the most dynamic technology, capitalism, you know, the most uh, freest market. Uh, but that's not historically been true. Uh, there was a study of Indian 100 baggers, for example, that found nearly 50 of them since 1970 in India, which is uh, a smaller market and a more recently developing market. So you can certainly find them outside the U.S. as well. Uh, to get to a hundred bagger, uh, just realistically, if you grow at fifty percent a year, which is uh, nearly impossible to do, but if you grow at fifty percent a year compounded earnings, you will get a hundred bagger in ten years at thirty-six percent growth. It takes fifteen years, and on down to fourteen percent growth, you, uh, it takes thirty-five years. And that's kind of the the maximum investment horizon for for most people that are that are investing. So. If you're growing much slower than 14%, you're probably not going to get to 100 bagger. Certain industries like, like utilities are just not going to produce 100 baggers hardly ever. Uh, but contrary to expectations, very few of them are, are in tech. It's actually more in industrials and food and so on. But we'll get to that in a minute. Um, the book spends the most time on monster beverage, which is kind of the the most classic example, because I think, if, if memory serves me right, it went up 16,000 X. So, uh, what is that? $10,000 would be worth 160 million or something crazy like that. Uh, what made Monster so successful? Uh, when, at the start of the period, it was selling for less than uh, 10 times earnings, and sales were only like $50 million a year. There were no analysts covering the company. Uh, and so it was able to grow at 50 and even 100% for quite a while, like five, six years at the beginning. Um, interestingly, the PE ratio, despite it going up 16,000 X, the PE ratio never went above 30. At any time, you could have bought the stock and it would have not been nosebleed expensive. I mean, you might not want to pay 28 times earnings for a company, but uh, you never had to pay 500 times earnings for it, for example. Um uh, the very interesting factoid on Value Investors Club, which is kind of a leading place where hedge fund analysts uh, hang out and discuss stocks. It was pitched by Value Investor Club's uh, uh, kind of most prominent uh, analyst who had won their best idea three times. It was pitched as a short uh, in 2005, saying that it was a fad product uh, and that it was due for mean reversion, and obviously the stock went up hundreds of fold since then. So that uh, uh, it's kind of interesting to see that the things that make hundred baggers are often things that uh, analysts will look down on, like having a hot product and uh, growing quickly but not having analyst coverage and so on. Uh, MTY Foods, this was another one a case study in the book. It's a Canadian uh, restaurant fast food franchise company. Uh, it's I don't have the exact number, but it was up hundreds of percent. Uh, but like Monster, it started off at five times earnings. Uh, to get to 100 bagger, interestingly, it grew its store location 17x. It grew its earnings 12x. And then its multiple went up 8x from four, uh, five times earnings to 40 times earnings. And so that's one of the points that Meyer makes over and over in the book is that you need... Generally, you need to buy at a reasonable multiple and then have earnings growth plus uh, multiple expansion growth if you want truly tremendous gains. The, most of these 100 baggers you see, people paid 15 or less, and often much less than 15 times earnings at the start of the period. Uh, and then over time, as people realized the quality of the company, it got bigger, it got more analyst coverage, the P ratio would climb towards 20, 25, 30 times earnings. And that would give you uh, kind of the crazy returns because you have the earnings growth plus the valuation expansion. Uh, and when I saw people quoting this book last year on there were threads on Twitter, people are using it to justify buying stocks like Snowflake or Zoom, or, uh, these companies that aren't profitable and selling at huge revenue multiples, not earnings multiples, revenue multiples. So like, clearly you didn't read the book because in every chapter you're saying you need valuation expansion to get 100 baggers. There's no way that you're going to get 100x off of a stock that's already at a 100 billion market cap and has 1 billion of revenues. It's just, you look through the, the glossary, at the end of the book, he's got the list of the 365 stocks that 100x. There's virtually no examples of a, of a snowflake kind of company get, doing that. Uh, yeah, and so another important factor, and this kind of relates to the coffee can uh, approach, is that you need a company that's durable. So... Ideally, you want a balance sheet that's not uh, 
highly stressed because if you have to, if the company has to raise money, potentially can go bankrupt every time there's a recession, then you're going to have to decide, am I going to sell this? Is the company permanently impaired? Uh, like in COVID, a lot of companies that had been using a lot of leverage either went bankrupt or had to raise capital on painful terms that would eliminate their path to being a hundred bagger. Uh, if you look at the S&P 500, how long an average company lasts in the S&P 500, the average IT company only lasts six years, uh, meaning that if one a new software company enters the S&P, on, on average, it will exit the index six years later. And so obviously you're not getting a hundred bagger if the stock is already leaving the index. Whereas staples last 15 years, industrials last 15 years, materials last 18 years, and so on. Like your fishing rate is much higher if you fish in a pond where companies tend to be stable long-term winners. Uh, if you may, uh, like PepsiCo is a perfect example. PepsiCo was a 2x 100-bagger, meaning it was a 100-bagger in both Phelps's original book and in Meyer's uh, redo. In the original case from, 1940, uh, from 1940 to the 1970s, Pepsi went up 300x, and then from 1970 to 2000, it went up another 150x. So... Uh, if someone had bought it for their kid, their kid could have had one of the most sensational investments of imaginable. Um, what made Pepsi so successful originally, its first 100x was dominating the U.S. market, going from being a regional soft drink with very little distribution to being the national competitor to Coke. And then the second 100x was from international expansion going into China and then the USSR once Russia opened up. Those markets were pivotal to making Pepsi successful and also the, the purchase of Frito-Lay, their snack food uh, division. From 1970 to 2015, sales went from $200 million to $64 billion, uh, and the company's gross margin actually went up significantly as the business got bigger. Uh, and so that was another one where it was selling at a reasonable PE, I believe, 13 times at the start of the period. Uh, and so you never had to pay an expensive multiple. You just needed to see that the company had a repeatable business model, that it could keep growing. Uh, and you would be uh, faithfully rewarded if you held the stock uh, for a long period. So businesses like that, where they're, in a, where they're in an industry with limited competition, there's not too many new soft drink uh, brands coming along to try to dethrone them. You've got a clear reinvestment runway to use your capital, high return on equity, great margins. Those are where you tend to get most of the hundred baggers. You get the occasional one, the flukes, as Meyer calls them, from things like mining and oil, where somebody hits a huge mine or a huge oil well, and you get a hundred x. But that's pretty random. It's hard to it's hard to know without foresight how those are going to play out. And then in tech, you you've got your apples that come along and do a hundred x. But even there, if you how would you have gotten a hundred x apple? Because you would have had to buy it before nineteen ninety. And in 1990, you had no foresight of the iPhone, you had no foresight of the iPod, none of that. Uh, if you were holding Apple in 1997, 1998, you were down 50% on your money. Jobs had left to go to the competition. The company's uh, line of computers appeared to be floundering. At one point, there was a liquidity squeeze. So it's highly unlikely that an investor that bought Apple in the 1980s or early 1990s would have stuck it through and uh, stuck around for jobs as returned in the iPod and all. And so if someone bought the stock and truly forgot about it and held it forever, they would have had a tremendous return. Uh, but that's very hard for if you just put yourself in those shoes. How are you going to do that in the future? And for every Apple, uh, you've got a BlackBerry, you've got a Motorola, you've got a, a Palm all of these that were the leader in phones and communication devices at one point and went to zero or close to it. And so you can get 100 baggers that way, but uh, just know that you're going to be taking a lot more psychological uh, stress holding one of those than something like a PepsiCo, where it's got a repeatable growth platform with uh, a lot less volatility. Let's see. So, yeah, how do you get... Uh, how do you find these sorts of companies? You look for companies where the gross margin doesn't fade, or in fact, uh, oftentimes the gross margin will go up as the company gets bigger. Uh, and that's important because you look at all these software companies, for example, and their margin has been starting to fade as they compete in new verticals where there's more competition or other people are coming after them. Uh, and so... If a company is already as good as it's going to get in terms of its sales, like oftentimes in software and new technology, you find your ideal customers first, and then as you try to broaden your platform, you have to cut prices or 
or run into more uh, issues. And so your margins will go down and that will really hurt your, your ability to be a hundred bagger in terms of reinvesting capital efficiently for many years. Whereas a company that dominates its industry, where it's an oligopoly, there's only a couple of players, those tend to have stable or rising margins. Uh, but analysts tend to, to model that margins are going to revert. And so you want to look for industries where people are expecting multiples to fade, uh, but then profits stay up regardless. So staples are a great example. Luxury items, like the luxury companies, always exceed expectations of how stable and durable their profits are. Industries like that, uh, yeah, and that gets into a discussion of something like a moat. Uh, McCormick, one of my favorite socks that makes food and spices and was, I believe it was what, 300x over this book, so over the period studied in the book. Uh, it's a great moat because they sell 55% of the spices in the U.S. And because of that, because they sell the majority position, it's uneconomic for anyone to come in and compete with them because they price they price their goods just high enough that no one wants to come in and compete because being number two in a in a one company market is not a great place to be. They also make the uh, generic spices for most of you, like your Kroger and Walmart, whatever. You can buy the McCormick bottle or you can buy the generic Walmart bottle and they're both made by McCormick. And so, and the spice market isn't really large enough to support a second player uh, on a national scale. And so there's just no reason to compete with them because if you try to come in, McCormick will lower prices until you go bust as the new entrant and then they'll raise prices again. And so, it's uh, it's the kind of market that you're going to dominate. You've got companies like so many companies on this list, like things like Sherman Williams. They just they only have one competitor. Or they don't have any competitor because they dominate a niche. That's where you find a lot of these. Is they're they're resistant. Their margins don't go down because it's just no one's going to come in and disrupt them. Uh, but one of the places I disagree with Meyer, or at least I I would push back a little bit with his book. Uh, one of his favorite places to look for 100 baggers is in terms of owner-operators. Uh, and he likes looking at fund managers' largest holdings as well. And it's interesting as a sort of time capsule. You can go and see the largest holdings in 2015 when the book was published of, of people like Prem Watts, Prem Watts and uh, Berkowitz and all. And so you see these like potential 100 baggers, and it turns out that uh, like Watts' largest holding was BlackBerry. Uh, Berkowitz's largest holding was Sears. Uh, so you see a lot of these famous fund managers. Ackman's largest holding was, uh, what was it? It was bad. Oh, it was Valiant, I believe. So another one that blew up. And so uh, don't necessarily just clone famous investors when looking for 100 baggers. Uh, that's one of Meyer's ideas. But uh, if you followed his examples from 2015, it didn't work out so well. Uh, However, I will say when Meyer was giving some of his own ideas for potential 100 baggers from 2015, so this is with seven years of hindsight now, he gave NVR, the home builder, which has done phenomenally, Donahar, which has done well, Transdime, which has done extremely well, uh, Valiant, which blew up, not so good, AutoZone, which has done amazing, and Constellation, which uh, is obviously Fintwit's favorite, one of Fintwit's favorite stocks now. So I'd say Meyer's list of potential 100 baggers has done very well. Uh, let's see. Yeah, and on AutoZone specifically, I think it's a very interesting case study because you might not think of it as something that could be a 100 bagger. Uh, it only grows maybe 5 or 6% a year in terms of the top line. Like I said before, you need 14% growth annually to get to uh, 100x in 35 years. And so how could something like AutoZone be a 100x stock? Uh, but that's because it buys back 5% or more of its outstanding shares every year. And so even though you have 5% top line growth or something like that, earnings grow at, at a far faster rate because this company has been buying back 5 or 10% of its outstanding flow every year since the 1990s. Uh, I believe there were 200 million shares outstanding at one point, and now there's fewer than 25 million. And so if you owned uh, one share of AutoZone many years ago, you effectively own 10 shares worth of it now. And so, yeah, maybe the business only grows at 5% a year, but your ownership stake, uh, your economic power grows far more quickly. Uh, Maya relates this to the idea of a ton time, uh, which I believe this was used recently in a SPAC or something. Uh, but anyway... The idea of a Tantine came from a banker named Tanti, who was raising funds for the king of France and decided to issue a bond 
uh, where everyone that was a holder of it would get a fixed interest payment every year. But as people died, the interest payment for the people that remained alive would be bigger because the pool, like say they say would pay out a million dollars every year and there were a thousand holders and every person would get a thousand dollars. But as people died, the remaining holders would get a bigger and bigger pool until eventually when there was just one person alive, uh, he or she would get the entire uh, payment. And so that's kind of how buybacks work conceptually when you think about it. Something like AutoZone, there used to be a huge number of holders of that company, and now 90% of them have uh, been taken out by the share buyback. And so those of us, I'm a shareholder, uh, those of us who remain shareholders uh, own more and more of the company every year. And as long as they keep growing the business even a little bit, uh, our economic interest will grow tremendously. Um, So let me bring up the list. Uh, there's 365 historically that made it between 1962 and 2015. Obviously, I don't have time to go over all of those. However, I will mention all of them that went up a thousand, a thousand x. So, ten thousand dollars over the period studied in the book would leave you with ten million or more. So, there's Hormel Foods, which is obviously my largest holding. Love it. Uh, just tremendous company. One of a very small player, number of players in the meat industry. Uh, earnings grow at 10% a year consistently. The company is run by a foundation that basically tells the management team, grow our earnings at 10% a year. And then some years they grow more than that, plus you get a dividend that's a considerable portion of earnings and the dividend goes up 10% a year as well. So as mentioned before, if you get 15% compounded growth, you you 100x in 35 years. Although in this case, it only took for about 27 years to get to 100x status. And then it went on to go to uh, 2,330 bagger between uh, 1962 and 2015. Uh, will it go up 2,000x again in the future? Probably not because it's bigger, but I think it could 100x in my lifetime. Uh, Rollins went up 3,000x. That's uh, pest control. That was a very good one because they it rolls up. Uh, the pest control market used to be all independent contractors in an individual town, and Rollins just kind of buys up local franchises. And then they get benefits of scale from from having it all in one platform. So there's a huge platform to reinvest there. Uh, TJX went up 7,000x. It's a discount retailer. I don't know their story too well. Lowe's went up 4,000x. That's the holding company, LOES, not the, the hardware store. Uh, and I, I guess they made good investment decisions. I don't, I don't know their story that well. Abbott went up 2,000x. So pharmaceutical. Altria went up 15,000x, uh, another one of Fintwit's favorite stocks. Uh, that was kind of a you know, uh, dividend story. That one was selling for 10 times earnings or less for for a, an extended period because people were afraid that it was going to get sued out of business by the government for the cancer uh, liabilities. And then when that didn't happen, they were able to pay mass dividends and buybacks at a, at a crazy cheap valuation. And that led to 15,000x return. So... Ten thousand dollars into one hundred and fifty million over the between nineteen sixty two and two thousand fifteen. Uh, Crane, uh, which makes industrial equipment, went up eleven hundred x. CVS Health, the drugstore, went up twenty eight hundred x. It's another one where you you used to have a bunch of independent independent pharmacies. CVS rolled them all up. They really only have Walgreens as a major competitor. So you've got huge. Uh, scale efficiencies, your profit margin can go up each time you buy more stores. Uh, Walt Disney, the one that uh, Buffett famously bought for 50 cents and sold for 70 cents or whatnot. Uh, had Buffett held it through the whole holding period through to 2015, he would have made more than 3,000 times his money. Uh, Echo Lab, which makes uh, environmental and cleaning products, up 2,000x. Uh, Kroger, the grocery store chain, went up 1,200x. That one's a little strange to me because their profit margins are very low, which would go contrary to most of the principles in the book, but I guess right place, right time, and there was certainly a large market to consolidate. New Market, which makes additives for the the oil industry, went up 5,000x. I I don't know much about the company, but I'm sure there's a fascinating story there. PepsiCo, uh, up 1,000x, as discussed. UST, which made, which makes uh, chewing tobacco, up 2,000x, was ultimately acquired by Altria. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, up 18,000x, that one needs no further explanation. 
McDonald's at 4,000x. It was a perfect example of like your MTY foods or whatever. You just start with a small store base, uh, keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. Your margins go up as you get bigger. International is a, the second leg of that story. Uh, you only have a few big competitors in terms of uh, international scale for burgers. I mean, Burger King and uh, Wendy's, and after that, it really drops off quickly. So, perfect example of the sort of business that can 100x, or in this case, 4,000x. Uh, H&R Block went up 2,800 times. Uh, that's the tax preparation company. I'd assume it was kind of a roll-up story, but I don't know their history that well. Uh, Holly Frontier, a refining firm, went up 12,000x. Uh, that's pretty incredible because, again, refining is generally a pretty crummy industry. So uh, kudos to management there. ADP, uh, which does payroll processing for uh, like uh, companies that don't want to do accounting in-house. They hire ADP to do paychecks for employees. That was up 2,700 fold. Uh, it was a perfect sort of industry for continual growth because essentially all big American businesses needed to hire out uh, that sort of back office stuff to remain competitive. And so ADP just grew and grew. And actually their spinoff Broadridge, which I own, is uh, well en route to be 100x itself. It was spun off in 2007. It does uh, shareholder communications, proxies, uh, stuff like that. And it's already up more than 10x since it was spun off. So ADP may be fun in that it's a 2,700x return itself, and then one of its uh, sibling companies, is going, uh, children companies, is going to be a 100-bagger as well. Uh, let's see, VF Corp, which makes clothing uh, up 2,300x, another not very good industry, but uh, management must have done a tremendous job. Lowe's up 2,000x, the hardware store. Uh, South America, and I think that one's insurance. I actually don't know, 2,700x. Uh, Newcore, the uh, steel company, but had a unique process for micro steel plants, like mini steel plants, uh, 1800X. Uh, Philippine long distance telephone, which I didn't even know this was listed, up 2700X. Uh, you can find 100 baggers overseas in addition to uh, in the US. Uh, there were very few US listed foreign companies back in the 1960s, but for whatever reason, the Philippine uh, telephone company was. And as that economy grew tremendously. Uh, and then this is getting long, but Palcorp up 2,300x, Rockwell Automation up 1,000x, Walmart up 12,000, Cisco, not the tech company, but Cisco, the food uh, distribution, like the, the delivers food to kitchens up 1,200x, Tyco up 1,100x. That one flamed out because of the accounting fraud, but had a great run before it did. General Dynamics, 1200X, Lockheed Martin, 1300X, uh, Southwest Airlines, 5000X, another crummy industry, but great management team. So if you can find a management team that has a unique vision for its industry, uh, it's something to watch. Because these companies that come out of bad industries, like, like a Holly Frontier or Southwest Airlines, but have some sort of special sauce, could be a good investment opportunity. Brown Foreman, another one of my favorite holdings, up 1200X. Uh, Jack Daniels was a $100 million a year brand uh, in the 1970s, and now it's the worldwide leader in whiskey. They also bought a tequila company uh, for hundred, several hundred million dollars 15 years ago, and now it's worth, I don't know, $5, $10 billion. Uh, tremendous management team run by family. Uh, Nordstrom up 1,000x, another bad business, good management team. Target, uh, Vornado, which is offices, uh, Family Dollar. Uh, Flowers Foods, which makes bread, Forest Laboratories, Pharma, Hasbro, the game company. And finally, after all those companies I just listed, I've been talking for like 10 minutes, just listing all of the 1,000Xers. Finally, we get to a tech company, Intel, of 2,900X. But uh, just to show you how much, how much of this list is tech versus not tech, like, I don't know, that's the 25th company I named. And finally, we get to Intel, which developed the a new semiconductor technology and uh, obviously rode it to tremendous success. Kansas City Southern, the railroad up 17,000x. Uh, railroads had been left for dead in the 1970s. They were trading at four or five times earnings. Then obviously they were revitalized when the price of gas went up uh, significantly. It became cheaper to use railroads again. So that industry came back to life. Kansas City Southern up 17,000x. 
McKesson drug distribution up 1,000x, State Street, the bank of 1,500x. Uh, contrary to popular belief, not all banks failed in 2008, many of them. There's many banks on this list, but most of them didn't make it to 1,000 bagger status. Most stayed in the 100x, simply because you need to grow more quickly than your average bank to get to 1,000x. Uh, but State Street made the list. Walgreens made the list, uh, like CVS. Pharmacies, great business. They consolidated across the country. Analog Devices, another semiconductor company. Finally, we're getting some tech companies here. Uh, Equifax, which does credit credit scores. Lancaster Colony, another food company. Packar, which does trucks. Uh, A.G. Edwards, which was a brokerage firm. Donahar, uh, industrial conglomerate. Gap, uh, which is clothing. Home Depot, up 3,000x. Franklin Resources, uh, which is the Ben Franklin Mutual Funds, up 11,000x. Asset management is a very good business. Uh, Amgen, finally uh, another drug company, up 1,600x. Uh, Jack Henry and Associates, which is back office, I believe back office software for banks, up 1,000x. Monster Beverage, uh, one of the case studies in the book, up 2,500x. And that was it between 2015. Uh, At that point, up through 2015, none of your famous names now, Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, none of them had made it to 1,000x, but all of those boring companies that I'd listed, all of those had made you 1,000x, but none of the tech companies, uh, aside from Intel, made it to 1,000x status. Uh, Amazon has now made it, and Microsoft has now made it, but the the number of tech companies that, uh, that produce life-changing returns is actually quite a bit smaller than people might think, and more often, it's companies like a CBS or a Walgreens or your food companies, uh, your PepsiCo's, Brown Foreman's that have what it takes to not just be a good business for five years or 10 years or one economic cycle, but have what it takes to be a good business indefinitely. And that's kind of what you need for the life-changing generational returns. So that's my my highlights from, from Christopher Meyer's book. And I'll open the line up. Uh, anything you found interesting, taking colors. Anyone want to hop on the line? All right, Gary. You are live, Gary. Hello. Good evening. Yeah, the the system's a little slow uh, on my phone tonight. No problem. Uh, Thanks for doing the topic. I'm curious regarding when you get a hundred or a thousand bagger, where are you starting the numbers from? And I've always wondered if you have to buy these during a bear market or a recession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look at the book, uh, at least the starting year, most of those started in the 1960s and ran through 2015. And then the tail end of the ones I read off were the 1970s or 1980s. Uh, but yeah, the majority of those were the 1960s, which was actually a bull market. Uh, the market was fairly high between 1962 and 1969 and didn't really crash until the, the mid-1970s. Uh, but most of the companies I was listing there, um, they continued to compound even during the bear markets. Like Maybe their stock went down temporarily, but earnings continued to grow. Okay. And regarding earnings, I think you said that these mostly had a low um, earnings number. I I think you said earnings, though, not sales. So are these companies already profitable when people are buying them? Yeah, the the vast majority of those that I listed off were profitable. Uh, I believe until the 1980s, it was illegal to do a public offering in the U.S. of a company that was not profitable already. I know Apple famously went public uh, without profits in the 1980s, and several states forbid uh, uh, clients in their states from buying the stock because it was viewed as too risky. So anything that was listed in the 1960s or 70s had already been profitable before it became publicly traded. Uh, yeah, and I think I mentioned, what was it, the average company had a market cap of $500 million and sales of $160 million at the start of the period. So three times this. Okay. That answers my question. Perfect. And any companies jump out at you as things that might be interesting for a 
uh, coffee can or long-term hold today? Uh, me personally, um, you know, I don't know. The, the market's really volatile right now. And uh, I noticed that you did not have uh, commodities companies in that list. Yeah, that's true. Aside from the, the oil refineries, but even though, yeah, it's not pure commodities. Uh, yeah, there were some mining and oil firms that made the list, but weren't a thousand X. They tended to be closer to a hundred X. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious uh, how many of those companies would have come from emerging markets versus uh, Europe and the U.S.? Yeah, that unfortunately, like I said, with the Philippine one, just most emerging market companies didn't come to the U.S. markets until the 1990s, so they weren't around with the U.S. listing long enough to make the period. But uh, like there was that study of the Indian market that found nearly 50 uh, hundred baggers in India, which is a much less mature and robust capital market than the U.S. So uh, they exist in other countries. It's just harder to assemble that data. Yeah, I would think that since the emerging markets are still emerging that it seems logical that the type of dramatic growth would more likely occur there to me yeah that's uh very true and like from my backyard here in colombia i can tell you that a uh, van colombia cib was uh 40x from 2001 through 2015 and hopefully fingers crossed we'll get another bull market so it'll be 100x uh between 2001 and I don't know, 2024. Uh, so we can add some more to the list in a couple of years. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious right now, your opinion on how the dollar is affecting Latin American stocks. Uh, it's certainly uh, it's not helping them because uh, yeah, many of them have debts or, or issues with dollars. Dollars are kind of the oxygen for the economy. So when the dollar goes up, it's kind of like putting a blanket over the the economy so uh, it's certainly not positive development what we're seeing now but yeah do you think that when the dollar rolls over is when emerging markets might really start to grow it would certainly help or if uh commodities get going again like oil's moving up so in theory that should be good for a lot of emerging markets but we'll see the, the market's not really rewarding normal correlations at the moment yeah, I've just I've been watching uh, the ETF uh, ILF, the Latin American Fund, and uh -huh. it's just it's a it's a straight forty five degree angle from left to right. So <laughs> yep. I I keep wondering what's going to cause it to break up, but I, I don't know. Uh, I will uh, I will write on that more in the future. That's a good topic, uh, but slightly a field of hundred baggers. So thanks for bringing it up, and I will I will put it on my list of things to cover. Oh, great, and thank you. Yep, thanks for calling in, and then let's go to Lucas. You're up next. Lucas, can you hear me? There you go. I guess I need to unmute myself. Buenas noches. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Excellent. Uh, got back from Argentina this morning, so I can uh, I can report everything is as cheap as it always was. Perfect. Uh, how was New Year's Day? Were people partying or still a lot of COVID uh, restrictions? No, no, they, they, they were partying. Uh, I think now they're, they're getting a little more freaked out because they, they had, uh, I think, 95,000 yesterday and over 100,000 today. And some crazy positivity rates of over fifty percent in tests. So, uh, but back back on New Year's, it was still pretty wild. And what was uh, what was the unofficial exchange rate there? Um, two hundred. I mean, two hundred is kind of where where you're at now, right now. It's so crazy. It was fifteen uh, when I lived there, two thousand fifteen, sixteen. It was fifteen to the dollar. Already <laughs> down to two hundred. <laughs> nice. So, uh, what does a nice restaurant cost? Um, you know, I, I had um, had a very nice dinner, steak dinner at a place called La Brigada. Um, it was dinner for two with appetizers, dessert, a huge, amazing steak, and a great bottle of wine. And I paid the equivalent of seventy-five US. Okay, yeah, that sounds that sounds about what my wife and I would have paid. Yep, the prices stay the same in dollars, but change dramatically in pesos. Yeah, yeah, that's what it seems like. And and uh, 
flights within Argentina are also just silly, silly cheap. Um, you know, we're, we're talking like seventy dollars for first class flights. First class, well, wow. yeah. Well, Amazing. it's bizarre, bizarre because they call it economy plus, but uh -huh. it is the equivalent of first class on any American airline. So it's like big seats, drinks, and everything. So <laughs> it makes no sense. It's but, amazing. Uh, I do have some ideas for hundred baggers. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's hear. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, auto dealers in the U.S. are a good candidate. Um, many of them haven't been listed that long, um, but I think there's a long runway for consolidation, and the valuations, you know, are are pretty low right now. I mean, they've always been low, so because they seem to be, everyone's always afraid of you know whatever car sales will, will be where when new car sales don't drive that much of profitability anyway. Okay, yeah, I'm not too familiar with this industry, but are we talking like AutoNation? Is that a good example? Yeah, so AutoNation, there's like seven or eight big ones that are listed. Um, and so they, they all tend to have like four business lines. Right? They, have, they have new cars, used cars, parts and service, and kind of financing products. Right, financing products is basically 100% margin business because you just get fees and commissions on sale and financing, extended warranties, yada, yada. New cars is like a 1% margin business. Used cars, it's between 4 to 6 plus percent. And right now, used cars are a little bit distorted, right? Because the used car prices went up and they're selling off this inventory. So they have these ridiculously high margins. But parts and service is where the money's at. And that tends to be 15 to 20% of revenue for most of the publicly listed dealers and something like 40 to 60% of EBITDA. Because well, it's a 50% margin business and it's very stable. Uh, yeah, I'm looking. So AutoNation looks like it's around seven times earnings, six times EBITDA, if this number is yep. right. And it looks like that's growing. So what's the bear case? Why don't people believe in this? Well, I think there's always, everyone's always focused on what will car sales be. Um, uh -huh. That's number one. And that's like the constant thing. Um, and and they just don't seem to care or, or, you know, acknowledge just the consistent profitability over time that comes from parts and service. Um, you know, there, there was an analyst note, I don't know, two months ago that said Tesla and Rivian are going to make all these car dealerships obsolete as well. But that, that's another story. If you think they're all going to be disrupted, that's a different debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that gets one of the key principles from the book is when analysts believe that the margins are too high and are going to fade, but then there's some structural reason why margins will stay elevated. And you just gave an excellent reason for why the, the analysts might be wrong here. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And so the, 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 you know, all of these de dealerships are very cash generative. Um, that's number one. And they, they basically deploy cash in one of two ways. Um, you know, they buy back stock or they buy other dealerships. Um, right now, 90, um, 95 or 96% of all dealerships are controlled by dealers that have between one and five dealerships. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, so the market extremely share fragmented. The big, yeah, the market share of the big players is still tiny. Correct. So the, the players that have 50 dealerships or more constitute 1% of the industry. Oh, wow. And you have excellent data from this because there's a, there's a very good um, – there's a very group industry body called the, the NADA, the National Association of whatever dealerships. Mm -hmm. um, so they have a lot of great data. Um, so that's number one. The other thing, they, they have all the auto, ship, auto dealerships have a real accounting quirk in that um, they have this debt on the balance sheet, which is called floor plan financing, right? And uh -huh. it's, it's financing that's extended to them by the OEMs, so GM and Ford, etc. So GM gotcha. advances, advances money to AutoNation, and nominally they charge them some interest rate based on LIBOR, and then AutoNation uses that money to finance the purchase of vehicles. Now, as they sell vehicles based on volume, they get interest rebates from the OEMs. Uh -huh. 
uh-huh. and the, the, the larger dealerships, the dealerships that have a lot of volume and have scale, hit these rebate targets very easily. And all of the dealerships disclose this. It's called floor plan assistance, and it generally flows through cost of goods sold as a rebate. And in most, I mean, I think in every case I've looked at, the floor plan assistance is multiples of the floor plan interest. So, like, let's say... So, it's actually a profit center. Yeah. So, it's like they have $900 million of debt in which they're paying a negative interest rate. (laughs) So, it's carry. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so basically, you know, my contention is that you should exclude that from invested capital as you're calculating your ROIC. Um, And if you do that, you're going to find ROICs are, you know, a lot more favorable uh, because there's a lot less capital actually involved. And I think... you should exclude it because it's really not capital. You have to go out to capital markets or equity owners, right? It's basically, as you're in business, you do business with GM, they advance you all this money. Mm-hmm. And then, so I uh, think the economics are, are quite, quite good. And, you know, the, again, the National Dealership Association um, has data on sort of returns on equity. And in the worst year, which was 2009, I think the average auto dealership made like a 19% ROE. That's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you look at it, you know, and they all have real estate, right? They, they have the lots and buildings. So all of that gets financed as, as typical mortgages. So that's easy in terms of financing and low cost. And then they get all this money from the OEMs. So there's actually not that much equity involved. Um, yeah, what happens in a in a 2009 scenario? Say a bunch of cars from a given year just don't sell. There's no demand. Uh, who takes the loss there? Do, do the is it the GM or Ford or how does that work in terms of clearing out inventory? No, so the, so the dealer the dealership you know does does have that risk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that uh, is the big risk. Um, I would add the other trend I think that's happening is cars get more complex. The mm-hmm. servicing and repair of those cars requires more complex tools. And again, the branded dealership, right, is in a better position to invest in those tools and training as sure. opposed to the independent, you know, mechanic store. So again, that, that's kind of another trend that's driving towards uh, the better capitalized groups. Uh, well, if we assume that most sales in 20 years are electric vehicles, will that cause less repairs? I believe those engines are less complex. Or help yeah, me so I, I, I think that that's, that's one of the arguments. Now, you know, the, if 100% of the cars sold today were electric, it would take roughly 20 years for the fleet to turn over on sure. a global basis. Yep. Um, and yeah, so there, there will be probably less because the mo- most common thing you do is oil changes. Um, but there'll still be, you know, tire rotations, battery checks, fluids, uh, and, and other things of that nature. Okay, perfect. Yeah. In terms of capital allocation, is it? Uh, would you say it's more buybacks or more more rolling up other dealerships? Well, so it depends. Depends who who you look at. So on one end of the spectrum, you have an automation which almost exclusively does buybacks. Mm-hmm. On the other end, you might have like a Lithia Auto ticker is LAD, which does quite a lot more of, of roll-ups and, you know, acquisitions. And which uh, which model do you find more compelling? You know, I, I, I don't... I, I, I think solely doing buybacks is a little short, short-sighted in an industry that has so much room for consolidation. Um, but I would say the market, you know, as, as you know, has sentiments and, and different moods. And at different points in time, it tends to reward different kind of companies. Um, so, so that you know, I, I think doing some consolidation makes sense. At the other hand, you know, when your stock is selling at seven times cash flow, then it's it's hard to resist doing buybacks either. So, it, it really depends. And what sort of price? Uh, what sort of price are they paying uh, for when they buy dealerships? Is there a nice kind of multiple synergy from what, private market to public? Um, right now, certainly not. Right now, if I when I look at the deals, you know, people are paying very high prices for the dealerships, especially the bigger groups, right? So th- there's not that many 
dealerships that are privately held where you can buy, you know, a group that has 50, 60, 70 dealerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and right now, you know, prices for all assets are pretty high. And if you're running a 60, you know, a, a group of 60 dealerships, you're, you're reasonably sophisticated. There's a investment banker running a bid, bidding process. Um, there's not uh, a cheap asset out there. So right now it's, it's not great. Um, but at other times, you know, they're paying less than 10 times EBITDA. Okay. Yeah. That's a great idea. Uh, and, uh, feel free to share more of those notes with me, uh, offline after this discussion, I want to look at it further and anything else you want to pitch? I'd be happy uh, to hear another one if you've got it. <laughs> that, that's all I have. Uh, go to Argentina for a good value. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I own the airports there and, uh, it's too speculative to make a big position, but I, I'm hopeful that it could be. Uh, do you know the airport company there, though? Um, no, I, I know of it, but I, I really don't don't know the details. I can tell you I contributed to the financial performance of it over the last few weeks. <laughs> Thank you. We, we appreciate it. But, yeah, it was no, trading please, at, do tell. Do tell. What, what's the details on that? Yeah, so airports uh, in developed markets usually trade hands uh, privately like 20 or more than 20 times EBITDA. And then in emerging markets like Mexico, historically, they're on 15 times, although sometimes they go higher. I think the Thai airports that are publicly traded got up to 25x at the top of last cycle. Uh, and so the Argentine airport company, which is uh, it's 60% Argentina and then like the rest is Italy, Brazil, Ecuador, variety of countries. Uh, it came public at, I believe, seven times EBITDA, and then politics went south in Argentina, and so immediately the stock was down like 75%. Uh, and so at the height of the pandemic, uh, I believe it was trading at like three times normalized EBITDA. Uh, and the thing people didn't realize is that all of the, the holding companies in Luxembourg and can get rid of any assets individually, so like they could just get rid of Argentina like if it became unprofitable or whatever. So you've got airports in Italy that uh, presumably based on the comps in France and Germany and whatnot, the Italian airports alone should be worth 15 times EBITDA. And so uh, at the price and uh, the COVID price, like the whole company was selling for less than the value of their Italian airports, which are 10% of the business. And uh, Even now, I think it's at five times normalized EBITDA and uh, Argentina's government has become more conservative. I think they'll elect a conservative president in 2023. So uh if you get to eight or ten times EBITDA, you get a stock in the twenties versus six bucks now and two bucks last year, which is uh, the pendulum tends to swing pretty far in both directions in Argentina. Sure, and would you mind sharing the ticker for those who don't don't know it by heart? Oh, sure. Yeah, so C A A P Corporation America Airports. Gotcha. And, Thanks. Uh, and Argentina gave them a ten-year extension on their leases uh, during 2020 as kind of compensation for COVID. Because uh, I believe there's some sort of performance guarantee, and obviously the airports didn't perform, uh, so so they got their leases extended ten years for free, uh, which the stock was up like fifty percent on that news. But uh, <laughs> when you're talking on the amount of like the stock going up fifty percent was like half a turn of EBITDA. <laughs> so it's like, obviously the stock reacted a lot, but I think it should have reacted a lot more on uh, extending the life cycle of sixty percent of their EBITDA. But yeah, that's uh, if you're looking for an Argentine value, not something to make a huge position because there's a lot of uh, moving parts and risks. Uh, but as a potential hundred bagger kind of stock that nobody's looking at now. Gotcha. Thank you. Yep. Uh, thanks for coming out. I, I love the auto dealerships idea. Let's touch base on that later. Okay. Take care. Yep. All right. Bye. Anyone else want to hop on the line? All right. Anyone else? Uh, Sam, let's see. Sam, you're up. Hey, hey, and um, don't have much to say except you know, thanks for um, thanks for doing this. Been loving all your episodes every week, so. Well, thanks for your listenership. I really appreciate it. The positive feedback uh, keeps me going. So, yep, but, that's all I have. All right, well, thank you, and look forward to seeing you next episode.
All right. Anyone else? Uh, all right. Well, it's been an hour, so I think we've had a pretty good discussion. Uh, so if no one else wants to hop on, thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Feel free to leave any other comments on Twitter or whatever. Uh, suggest a future episode. Uh, yeah, so thanks for listening. Appreciate it. And have a great week. And I'll talk to you guys again soon.